over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, on the broadcast today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Gordon Johnson. Dr. Gordon Johnson and I sat in summer Greek together in 1981. Is that right, Gordon? 81, that's right. We sat in our first uh, summer, it was called Baby Greek. We did two uh, two semesters of Greek in, in 10 weeks, I guess. And uh, Jackie Deer was our Greek professor. And then we took our languages together and uh, all of our languages from Hebrew from Dr. Ross. And you, of course, were the A student everybody hated. And I was the uh, the uh, uh, soldiering on, plotting, uh, strong <laughs> C student. <laughs> I think you exaggerate. <laughs> Dr. Gordon Johnson is known for his research. Boy, I can underscore that because we used to study together. He is got degrees in classical Greek, in biblical Greek and Hebrew, the famous THM from our alma mater, Dallas Seminary. He also did Hebrew and Semitic languages, a a doctoral, a doctoral program in that during 2010 and 11. He took a sabbatical and he went to, because he was bored, and went to the University (laughs) of Chicago where he studied the Hittites I bet that was scintillating. I'm sorry. He yeah, is also language. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, that's you, man. That's you. Yeah. Uh, he's done archaeological excavations in Israel. He's taught in India. He continues to research and write uh, primarily, not exclusively, in the wisdom literature corpus, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, along with other Old Testament theology issues, whether it's biblical covenants, God and law, and so forth. I won't read the rest of his resume other than Danielle, who if you saw Danielle, you'd say, how in the world did Gordon get her to marry him? Everybody uh, they, says that. Yeah, I say it too. They've been married more than 30 years. They've got three grown children. Hey, thanks for being on the program. Thank you, Michael. It's good to talk to you again, friend. Yeah. So you never left the farm, brother. Well, I got away for a little while, and then the long arm of Dallas came pulling me back. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm thrilled you're there. I'm thrilled you're there. We need folks like you who are going to do the hard, hard spade work and teach the rest of us. So well, in our enjoy. in our big book study, uh, cover to cover, going through the Bible, I wanted to talk to Dr. Johnson about the book of Isaiah. And so to start off, this is the third longest book in our Old Testament. We call it a major prophet. Give me a high view of the book of Isaiah, and then we'll get down into some specifics. So Isaiah was written during some dark generations of Israel. We'd call it the end of the 8th century, beginning of the 7th century, during wicked kings and some godly kings. Uh, And Israel to the north, Samaria had just fallen, and God was threatening uh, the same to Jerusalem. And so uh, Isaiah was called to call Jerusalem and Judah to repentance, Unfortunately, they failed to repent, and so God sent them into exile, but with the promise that one day he'd bring them back from exile and restore them and make them a godly nation, a godly people, if they would repent. 
Uh, so that's kind of the big view of the book. And of course, there's lots of lots of more details we we can fill in, and surely you've filled in already on your overview. One of the uh, things I pointed out in the message, Gordon, was the Wall Street Journal ad for the Dead Sea Scrolls and the story of how significant the discovery of the so-called Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the complete text of the book of Isaiah. Um, you've been there. You've seen the facsimile in the, in the museum. Give me some observations. Yeah, it's really incredible. They've actually got several copies of Isaiah. There was Q Isaiah A and B. And it's incredible. It's one of the it's the longest scroll that we've got, and it's significant because we can compare it with what we call the Masoretic text, the oldest surviving complete manuscript that our Hebrew Bible that we study is used today, and so it, it compares very similar. We can see the, the scribal preservation, the, the care that the scribes took. So the Hebrew Bible that students in seminary study today is uh, Codex Leningradus from about 1000 A.D., but the Dead Sea Scrolls date back to about 150 B.C., so that takes us about 12 centuries earlier. And so it, it, it gives us a window into how careful the scribes had copied it. One of the remarkable things is uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the God, God's name Yahweh, before the exile, they wrote in what we call the Old Hebrew Script, Yep. And then uh, during the exile, they adopted the Aramaic language and Aramaic script, and so the Hebrew Bible was then copied into the Aramaic script. But at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of the scribes, while they recopied the Hebrew Bible and the Aramaic script, in many cases they didn't, uh, they didn't change the name Yahweh. They kept the name Yahweh in the old script, uh, the same script from the time of Moses, from the time of Isaiah. So it's really, really fascinating. So explain for us common folk the importance of finding a text that was, what, almost a thousand years older. Right. What's the significance of that, especially with liberal scholars that attended to attack the authenticity of Isaiah? Sure. Well, there's several layers to that. One is is that uh, it takes us back several centuries, even before the time of Christ, where we have the, the Hebrew text even that that would have come to the time of Christ. But beyond that, because we've got some of these old archaic spellings in the book of Isaiah, like the divine name, it's it's still written in the way it was written before the exile. It shows and indicates to us that the book of Isaiah was written, it was copied even from before the exile. And there's even some early forms in the Hebrew language that's changed over time. For example, we went from the old King James language to the new King James and even our King James Bible was updated, the Hebrew language itself changed during the exile. Uh, there was early forms, early ways of, of writing before the exile, not just writing the letters, but the way that words were written and spelled themselves. And the form of Hebrew in the book of Isaiah is a pre-exilic form. Uh, so that would indicate that Isaiah wrote this book in its entirety before the exile. Many uh, mainstream scholars try to argue that uh, the book's got composite authorship. There's a first Isaiah and a second Isaiah. That second Isaiah wrote during the exile, and the third Isaiah wrote in the post-exilic period. But all of the spellings, all of the forms of the Hebrew words in the book of Isaiah really point to a pre-exilic form, not just the script, not just the, the alphabetic script, but actually the language in it. So it's really significant. Talk about what's happening in Isaiah 6, where we all know the passage perhaps too well, 
where the, the angel flies and puts the uh, coal in his mouth. I bet you've preached a number of messages on that passage or certainly expounded it. I love the passage. So this is uh, the year of King Uzziah's death. It was the really when Isaiah got his calling. Uzziah was the last godly king before Jotham and Ahaz, the wicked kings that Isaiah ministered under. And so when Isaiah was at the temple, Yahweh shows him this vision of himself. And so he sees the Lord in heaven. It's, it's really interesting because in uh, the idea of the temple, is the temple is the place, the Holy of Holies is the place where heaven meets earth. So in a theological sense, when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he'd be stepping in, into heaven, if, if you will. It's, you know, scripture teaches that God sits enthroned in heaven, but his feet touch down on earth on the Ark of the Covenant, which is a footstool. And so Isaiah is seeing the Lord in this vision, and his feet are on the ground, the his, uh, uh, his, his garments are, are, are filling the temple, and so he's seeing into heaven and seeing how holy and awesome God is. And, of course, that convicts him of his sin, and uh, he confesses his sin. He confesses the sin of his people, and God cleanses him of his sin, so to speak, in this vision of the seraphim that take the uh, coals from the altar and purge his sin. And then once that happens, then he hears the Lord saying, whom, whom will I send, whom will I go? And, of course, Isaiah says, send me. So it really speaks to God's holiness uh, and uh, man's sinfulness, and yet God's uh, graciousness in, in giving and cleansing his servants uh, to call them to have a ministry to call the sinful people to repentance. So that's really what Isaiah 6 is all about. It's an amazing passage. From my study in the prophets, they all seem to be reluctant. Moses is reluctant. Haggai is reluctant. Jeremiah is reluctant. Isaiah seems willing. Am I am I wrong there, Gordon? He does. He does, doesn't he? he well, he's smitten at first, right? He's, he realizes how sinful and wicked he is. Uh, but you're right. Isaiah does seem willing. Jer- I think Jeremiah was willing. He was... Uh, uh, he was reluctant because he was a youth, and at one point felt as if God had betrayed him because the ministry was so difficult, he wanted to give up. But that passage about the burning in his bosom that convicted him. But it wasn't an easy ministry for Isaiah. Isaiah ended up likely paying with his life. Uh, Jewish tradition says that he was eventually executed, you know, in his late years. Okay, so you bring that up, and this is a hard left-turn digression, but when we read the so-called Hall of Faith, and how many of these prophets were not believed, and some of them endured incredible uh, pain, affliction, torture, sawn in two, we're told. I know there's you know, no definitive answer for this, but in, in your study and years of research, why do you think Israel was so um, loath to listen to the voices of God through these men? Yeah, so I think that, you know just the, the normal sinfulness of the human heart is part of it. Uh, another part of it was that Israel developed this mistaken notion that God's covenants were absolutely unconditional, uh, that because he made a covenant with Israel at Sinai, that he had promised an eternal relationship with them, they developed this mistaken idea that they could do anything, and uh, they would effectively get off the hook. Okay, let's go to Isaiah 7, because this is a passage that, again, most believers uh, here at Christmas time, the Lord is speaking to Ahaz. Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. 
And we hear this famous prophecy of this virgin who's going to bear a son, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. There's been a lot of attack on using this passage as a prophecy of the Christ in recent years. Yeah, it's a really, it's a fascinating example, test case of Old Testament prophecy. And it seems simple at first blush, but there's a lot of layers to it that are really fascinating. Certainly, ultimately, it's messianic, but the way that we get to the messianic, meaning is sometimes a little bit more complicated than we sometimes assume from a surface reading. We typically, the reason we understand ultimately as being messianic is because Matthew uh, quotes this in reference to the virgin birth of Christ, and, and rightfully so. Mary was, was a virgin, Christ was conceived of the Spirit, and Matthew looks to Isaiah 7 for this, but when we come back and look at the original context of Isaiah 7, and look at the context of the entire passage, it sometimes raises questions because our assumption is when we look at Matthew, we assume that it's direct prophecy and exclusive prophecy. But when we come back and look at Isaiah 7, questions rise. And I think part of the reason that we sometimes are surprised when we look at the context of Isaiah 7 is normally when we think of Messianic prophecy, we, we think of always exclusive, directly Messianic, that it would have been crystal clear as referring only to the Messiah, to the prophet, and to the original audience. It's certainly clear to us when we read it in the New Testament, but this is one of these cases when we look back and we look at the overall context, it gives us pause, and we wonder how in the world was this messianic. The context of Isaiah 7, Ahaz had just become king, it's the year 735. Uh, His enemies are trying to usurp him from the, the throne, and this is Syria to the north, the capital of Damascus, and Israel to the north, the capital in, in Samaria. And they're trying to uh, force him into an alliance because the Assyrians are from Mesopotamia are beginning to come west every year and subjugate them. So they wanted to uh, form an alliance. Ahaz doesn't want to form, be part of the alliance because he's afraid of the Assyrians. He's afraid if you go up against them, they're going to destroy you. So he wants to remain neutral. And so uh, we're told at the beginning of the chapter that uh, Syria and Israel were trying to force his hands. And indeed, Yahweh tells him, don't join the alliance and don't depend upon the Assyrians because I will destroy, I'll subjugate Israel to the north and Syria, Damascus to the far north within the next couple of years. And that happens in 734 and 732 BC. Then Yahweh tells him, but at the same time, don't depend upon the Assyrians. I want you to depend upon me. Ahaz doesn't want to depend upon the Lord. Ahaz uh, wants to depend upon the Assyrians. He wants to make an alliance with them. And so Yahweh tells him, don't do that, depend upon me, and if you ask for a sign, I'll fulfill the sign. Ahaz pleads the spiritual card, well, I would want to test the Lord, uh, and really he just doesn't want to trust the Lord. So Yahweh gives this sign, and the sign is starts in verse 14, but it goes all the way to verse 17. And the sign is a sign of both deliverance and judgment. It's a sign of deliverance of what should have been and would have been but what's not going to happen because of your lack of faithfulness. So the sign begins in verse 14 where he says, Behold, this young woman is about to conceive and give birth to a son. And then it says, You, young woman, will name him Emmanuel. 
And then it goes on to say he'll eat sour milk and honey, which will help him to know how to reject the evil and choose the good. And here's why this will be. It says, because before the child knows how to reject evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you fear will be desolate. So this is referring back to Israel to the north, Samaria, and Syria to the north and Damascus, the two nations that he's afraid of. So before that child knows how to choose good over evil, these two kings will be destroyed. And then he says, then the Lord will bring upon you and your people, your father's family, a time like any other since Ephraim departed, the king of Assyria. So all three of these other players, Israel to the north, Syria to the farther north, Assyria to the east, all three of these are going to be part of this. And the child is already, as far as Isaiah is describing this, the child is going to be born, and this child will already know how to choose between good and evil before these two kings are wiped off the scene. And that happens in 734 and in 722. So when the child is two years old and when the child is 12 years old, they would see Jerusalem's deliverance. And then in 701 B.C., the king of Assyria, so the very the king he was wanting to make an alliance in, the king of Assyria is going to come and invade Jerusalem. And that gets fulfilled in 701 B.C. So it appears in a contextual reading of what Isaiah is talking about that this woman is already pregnant, about to give birth. The child that she's going to give birth to, his name would be God with us, not in the sense that God would be incarnate in the time of Isaiah, but that God would be with Jerusalem to protect Jerusalem, and that this he'd be with them to deliver them, but at the same time, he's going to be with them to judge them because Ahaz has failed to trust in Yahweh. So whoever this child was in the original historical context, he was on the scene already in Isaiah's day. Isaiah likely would have seen his birth. And when these events happen, 734, 722, 701, he's already on the scene. So now, in that way, you start wondering now, how in the world can this be prophetic of Jesus? It's interesting that in Second Temple period Jewish literature, intertestamental period, none of, the, none of the Jewish interpreters saw Isaiah 7 as being messianic. They all viewed this as being historically fulfilled in and around the time of, of Hezekiah. So the question is, how does this become prophetic? It's likely prophetic in what we would call a typological sense, because whereas you have a young woman in the time of Isaiah who gave birth to a son, and the, the birth of that child was a sign of God being with his people both to save and deliver, when Matthew saw the virgin birth of Mary, and he knew the virgin birth because it was a historical fact, he saw in the virgin birth of Mary in the birth of an ultimate son, a greater son than even in the time of Isaiah, and that this son fulfilled the pattern of God with us even in a, a heightened sense, a more elevated sense, that he actually was God incarnate. And God with Israel and with his people, both to deliver them as well as to judge them. So Matthew likely has what we would call a pattern fulfillment, an escalated fulfillment. And you see a lot of these patterns. In Matthew, he does this a lot. He, he will quote for Hosea 11, about out of Israel I called my son. 
whereas Hosea was talking about God calling his son Israel out of Egypt, Matthew saw in that when when the, the angel told Joseph to go to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill the infant, they went to Egypt, and then after Herod died, God called his son, his ultimate son, out of Egypt. Um, you, we, you remember Craig, uh, Craig Lickman, one of our old professors, sure. uh, when he had done his dissertation in uh, years and years ago, uh, he had done typology of Messiah in Matthew, the opening chapters of Matthew, and he showed that Matthew's use of the Old Testament uh, was typological, that he took passages that were often about Israel or passages about agents that God used to bring about Israel's deliverance in the Old Testament. And he saw patterns that in Christ, uh, there's a second exodus, there's a greater exodus, there's a greater Moses, there's a greater deliverance, and there's a greater covenant. So he's moving from, we often talk, Paul talked about the old covenant came with glory, the new covenant came with greater glory. So I think that's likely the way to understand what's happening in Isaiah 7, because if we look at the original context, it looks very much rooted in history. But Matthew saw that in the birth of Jesus, there was a second son that ultimately God ultimately had in mind behind this language. So I think in Isaiah 7, we'd have to say that God had two sons in mind. One was the historical son that, that during the days of Isaiah, and one was the ultimate son that was uh, in, in the first century. As my good friend John Ankerberg often says when I get a little thick, he goes, Michael, talk to my grandmother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk to my grandmother. So yeah. so let me say it in this way. I, I use the illustration of tells, and when I take groups to Israel, I begin by talking about a tell, what a tell is. And I say, you know, you landed in Tel Aviv, and we're going to see Tel Dan, and so forth and so on. And Megiddo, we're going to see different Tels. And I go, these are rubbled communities that were built on top of rubble because they didn't have Home Depot and Lowe's. They had to use the rocks that were already there, and they would reposition them, and the building structures underneath could not be completely rebuilt. So each Tel is a layer. And so when we think of prophecy... Um, and again, I may be a, a simpleton here, Dr. I think Johnson, that's a great illustration. But, but it's, you know, what it meant for the audience in context in Isaiah 7 does not take away from how Matthew uses it. And that's then, right. and as we go to chapter 9, it, to me, it's even more compelling because yeah. by 9, we've got this messianic prophecy and description. I mean, it, it, I'll just read a little bit of it. I love the fact when he says in chapter 9, verse 1, by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, of people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And this takes us back not only to the Abrahamic covenant, but then takes us full force to Christ who will spend perhaps 60 or more percent of his, his ministry time around Galilee. And, um, and then as you continue in chapter 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given Anyone who grew up around Handel's Messiah or went to a concert, the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. No end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David. So now we're Davidic, back to Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 and following. So, I mean, if, if indeed there was typology in 7, this is crystal clear by 9, right? That's absolutely right, and it's interesting because it's got to point to an ultimate Davidic king. 
because he's talking about inaugurating this eternal rule that's going to provide for justice and righteousness forever and without end. Uh, and at the same time, it's very much rooted in the original historical context of the time of Isaiah, because in verse uh, 9, 1, where it says, in earlier days, Zebulun, Naphtali, the way of the sea, this is when the time period, even going back to Isaiah 7, when the Assyrians marched in, subjugated the Galilee in 734 B.C. Uh, it's before Samaria was destroyed in 722. So he's looking at, uh, as, as God gave this prophecy to Isaiah, Israel or Judah at the time, and Israel at the time was already under the, this cloud of darkness in his own days. And yet God declares there's going to be a time of light. The, the, the light of deliverance is going to shine in the Galilee. Now, Isaiah may have hoped for and and may have longed for that, that age of deliverance to be in his day. And when, when Hezekiah took the throne, he may have hoped in his heart that Hezekiah would be the one that would be this agent of light that would inaugurate uh, this, uh, this everlasting rule and would restore the glory to David's throne. But clearly Hezekiah fell short. I mean, he, uh, Isaiah 38 and 39 tells us that, uh, that Hezekiah depended upon the Babylonians, and he made a, tr a treaty with Merodach Baladat to try to bring about deliverance. And God says, no, because you've, de you've depended upon the Babylonians, you've doomed Jerusalem and Judah to go into Babylonian exile. So by the end of Isaiah's career, he realized that although he may have hoped that Hezekiah would be the one to fulfill this, clearly he wasn't. And Isaiah himself then looked beyond the exile that one day when God brings Israel back from the Babylonian exile, there's going to be this ultimate servant of Yahweh, this ultimate Davidic agent, this ultimate Davidic king that's going to be greater than Hezekiah, uh, that's going to be the one to, uh, to do this. So, yeah. Do you think the pious, devout Jew who heard Isaiah and then later who read these scrolls, do you think they understood a better, uh, may I ask this carefully, a better perspective of Messiah than you and me as New Testament believers? Well, I think we clearly know how they were, they were filled because... Well, we've got the advantage, right, of New Testament. But, but my question more is, I think too often we look at Old Testament lives and we can almost, not, not vilify, but we can look down on them a little bit. Or that's not even the right way of saying it. We, we, can, we, we sometimes tend to minimize that's better. what they knew. Right. And, and, and I'm, I'm suspicious, and again, you're the expert, that they knew a whole lot more than we give them credit for. Yeah, I think so. I think certainly Hezekiah or Isaiah, when in this vision that he has, he, he's got to understand just intuitively, even when he gave it, even before Hezekiah bailed, bailed out, that this image, this vision that God gave to him had to have exceeded any human agent, any human king, uh, because this is not just David on steroids. Right. Uh, this is uh, th this goes beyond what any human agent could have done. I like that. All right, let's jump ahead in time. And when I taught through this in our church, I made the observation. Isaiah, interestingly, includes the birth of Messiah, the prophecy of Messiah, and the crucifixion of Messiah, which to me I think is unique in one author in the Old Testament. I could be wrong. But when we come to chapter 53, uh, the so-called suffering servant, or as a pastor friend of mine called it, the rabbi's torture chamber. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this has been, you know, uh, 
I mean, for the believer who reads this, even if we look at typology and context and so forth, uh, I was raised Catholic, and the Catholic Church uh, taught this not unlike they taught uh, Song of Solomon. This was Israel primarily, and there's been all sorts of different you know ways of interpreting it. Give us some, you know, give us five or six bullets on when you read Isaiah 53, uh, the description of this man. And again, I, I'm a big proponent of the divine pronoun. I'm really frustrated, Gordon, that Bibles are dropping the capital from he and you because the reader doesn't always know right. uh, who this is. But in any event, uh, he's despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Uh, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried uh, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, on and on. All of us like sheep have gone astray. So uh, give us, you know, five or six Dr. Gordon Johnson bullets on Isaiah 53. So part of the reason that uh, uh, Jewish interpreters and others are reluctant to see uh, this as direct prophecy of Messiah is for that very reason that you talked about. It, it's not making clear who the identity of this person is. And you do have some passages earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah 49, in which the servant is actually explicitly identified as Israel. Uh, so when we come to 52.13 to 53.12, the question is, is this servant the same servant as in 49? And I think that the key to this is, is that there is, there's a progression, or if you want to call it layering, like we go back to your description before, that the picture of the servant in Isaiah 40 to 55 changes. In chapter 42, Yahweh describes Israel as a nation, as his servant. Uh, God called Israel at Sinai to be a servant, to be a light to the Gentiles. Uh, to be a covenant-keeping people. But by the time of Isaiah, he says, who's, who's blind but my servant? Who's disobedient like the one that I called? So how can Israel be a light to the nations when Israel's in darkness and blind? And so uh, in 49, he talks about, uh, Isaiah talks about uh, a remnant of Israel being the servant of God, uh, being called to bring Israel back to himself. So in chapter 49, the servant brings Israel back to himself. So clearly the servant's got to be smaller than Israel. So we're going, so the word servant goes from being the nation. The nation's supposed to be the servant that failed. So then God called the remnant. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah himself is called one of God's servants. The prophets are called the servants. The, the faithful are called the servants of the Lord. So God called them to bring Israel back to himself. But Israel failed to listen to even them. So ultimately what happens is the servant imagery, it's kind of like a pyramid, the base of the pyramid, if you will, the middle part of the pyramid and the top of the pyramid, larger, middle, and gets smaller. So the base of the pyramid, if you will, is, is the nation of Israel who failed to be God's servant. The remnant, the prophets, the faith were called to bring Israel back, but they ultimately failed, not because of failure on their part, but because the nation was, was hard-hearted. So ultimately it narrows all the way down to the Messiah. And what's interesting is that when you look at uh, the later Jewish interpretations of Isaiah 53, the Aramaic Targum, which is a, uh, an Aramaic translation of Isaiah, 
Jewish translation, they actually identify this servant in 53.13 as the Messiah. Look, uh, my servant, the Messiah. So they actually understand that ultimately it's going to be the Messiah that is the one who uh, is the agent of God's deliverance. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of overlap, a lot of continuity, a lot of connection between things in Isaiah 53 and the imagery of the Davidic king that you have in Isaiah 11, for example. Isaiah 11, the ultimate Davidic king is a, a, a root of Jesse, the, the branch uh, from the line of David. And so you've got this imagery in Isaiah 53 that he's this, this root out of per- parched ground. Uh, he's got the spirit of God upon him in Isaiah 42. In Isaiah chapter 11, the ultimate uh, uh, Davidic king's got the spirit upon him. Uh, and ultimately, the Davidic king or the servant in Isaiah 53 is the one that brings Israel back to himself. So uh, th- this is the ultimate servant of Yahweh. I think the most important feature about that would show that the servant has got to be an individual is that in Isaiah 49.6, God says that he's appointed the servant to be a light to the Gentiles and a either a covenant mediator for the people or a covenant-keeping people. Uh, you could translate it, I've appointed you to be a covenant-keeping people. But the problem is Israel didn't keep covenant. And so that prophecy was, was looking for fulfillment, and it ultimately gets fulfilled through the one who inaugurates the new covenant, the mediator of the new covenant. And so he's the one, and the New Testament understands Jesus that way, that he's the light to the Gentiles. He's the one that mediated the new covenant. And part of the question is, if, if this was Israel, uh, where's the kingdom? Uh, you know, Israel, Israel never fulfilled this. But the New Testament very clearly in Jesus sees that Jesus was the ideal Israel. He did everything God called Israel to do, but Israel failed. Jesus succeeded. He was willing to suffer to the end in order to mediate this new covenant. And so he inaugurated the new covenant with giving the Spirit. Well, you essentially answered the next question I was going to ask you in, in a wrap uh, to conclude our time was um, – you know, if there was one or two lessons, very concrete lessons for the believer, who he, she's reading their Bible, they're slogging through what may be an intimidating book to them. It's a long book. It is complex in places. So help out that man, woman, person like me who's just slogging along saying, okay, Gordon, what what are two or three really big lessons? That perhaps is your, your number one, unless you want to. Yeah. Yeah, number one, I think the book of Isaiah is calling the people of God, first and foremost, to promote social justice and moral righteousness. Uh, Israel had failed to do that, and people today, we, we fail to promote social justice and moral righteousness. The way that God brings that about is by the transformation of the heart, our brokenness, our contrition, recognizing that we can't do it, that we have failed in being... Uh, good, kind, just, upright people, but uh, through repentance and the cleansing of the Messiah, uh, the fount of redemption is open, and then the Spirit of God can go to work in our life to make us the kind of people that he wants us to be. In Isaiah 42, it says the servant of, of Yahweh will not falter or fail until he establishes moral righteousness and social justice upon the face of the earth. And to him all peoples will look for his Torah. So Ultimately, what God's doing is he's calling us to, to turn to him through the work of his servant, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, 
to forgive us of our sins and then to give us the Spirit so we can begin to obey Him and glorify Him by living the kind of lives uh, that He wants us to live, by being good, kind, uh, loving people that promote social justice, but uphold moral righteousness at the same time. Dr. Gordon Johnson, professor of Old Testament at the Dallas Theological Seminary, a longtime friend, and Gordon went on to be a Hebrew professor, and I just became a hack pastor, so hey. <laughs> I, I think I'd, I'd change the adjectives around. <laughs> well, blessings on you, and thanks for doing this, brother. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.